I was walking a lot outside, which we do a lot in Iceland. And I was walking to school in Fossorskole. And that was a 40 minute walk. And I walked there from eight years old till 12 year old. In this time, it didn't matter what weather was, you just walked to school, you know, it was kind of crazy. It wasn't just me, but, you know, all my friends too. And it sort of, you know, was character building. <laughs> you would like be a blizzard, you know, when you walk to school. And I would sing. That would sort of be my, my comfort. I mean, obviously it was very scary for an eight-year-old. And I remember moments where I was like terrified, just alone, like me against the elements. And you just did it, you know? I think I started to sing as a companion. Like, if the weather was crazy, you just sing loudly and then you are somehow like, okay, you're not taking over me. I'm gonna like make friends with you and this is my space here and claiming space. After doing this for 10 years or whatever, your melody start taking shape. I wasn't thinking that at all at that time, not at all. It was my survival mechanism that I had. You're listening to Sonic Symbolism. Sonic Symbolism. This is episode one. Most of us go through phases in our lives that take roughly three years. And it is not a coincidence that this is often how long it takes to make an album, a book, or a film. In the conversations on this podcast, me and my friends try to capture which moods, timbres, and tempos were vibrating during each of my ten albums. When I get asked about the differences of the music on my records, I find it quickest to use visual shortcuts. That's kind of why my album covers are almost like homemade tarot cards. The image on the front might seem just like a visual moment, but for me it is simply describing the sound of it. I try to express this with a color palette the textures of the textiles, with what I'm holding, and the angle of the posture I'm in shows its relationship to the world. Also, the emotion of the mouth tries to share the overall mood of the album. Perhaps you can call this some sort of sonic symbolism. I hope you enjoy it. Warmth, Björk. The words that describe debut are shy, beginner, the messenger. Silver. 
humility. Mohair. I live by the ocean. And during the night, I dive into it. My name is Otni Eir. I'm a writer and philosopher and a longtime friend of Björk. We started our friendship when we were working intensively on nature protection in Iceland in 2008 and tried to harness the natural energy in new ways. And speaking about energy, I had never known such a source of energy. Okay. In 2021, we sat down by the big lake at Þingvellir in Iceland, the place of the first parliament of the world, where they first tried making space for democracy in the year 900. And the Viking women claimed space there too. Þingvellir is also the place where the tectonic plates meet. But we were not talking about geology or laws. We were discussing Björk's first solo album, debut, which was released in 1993. I was asking her about the pronunciation of the word debut, and she suddenly finds the word funny and absurd, strange after having heard it so many times for so many years. Finally, we switch into English, maybe more used to speaking for hours in Icelandic, but we were doing our best. Okay, English. English, please. So, debut, if you could get your mind over to that time when the work was not yet there, when you somehow felt it coming, because you described for me this process that you somehow, you smell the work, you feel the touch of it or the vibration is it possible for you now to get over there and see how it did come? I think out of all my albums, it obviously being my first solo one, it was the one that probably captured most time. <laughs> so it sort of maybe was my life up to that point. So it was a quarter of a century time 
in it. So when I hear it now, it, it seems a little schizophrenic, but that's kind of because it has a little bit of me listening to jazz and my grandpa's house and a little bit listening to things at my mom's house and then me writing melodies, hiking on my own. So it was kind of covering 25 years. Also, of course, uh, my album came out quite late compared to other musicians. I was like 27 because I really loved being in a band and I really like this idea of forming a publishing company that would publish our own music and poetry and books and I didn't want to kind of like go out there in the world on my own and I didn't have this kind of ego feelings so much. But I think what started to happen before debut is that I had melodies becoming stronger and stronger. There were melodies I was writing and I couldn't place them in the band I was in. And they kind of almost started to take a life of their own. And I started to want to defend them and to give them the environment they deserved. So strangely <laughs> enough, maybe I was fooling myself. Uh, it was out of some sort of selflessness to be the mother of my melodies and provide them with the environment that they needed. And in that sense, start to live on my own and start to imagine what sounds could be around them and what, what kind of world. And I think my first instinct, <laughs> which is very different to now, was because I had been in a band for 10 years, two different bands, and it was always just the same instruments for every single song, which is amazing, but also can be very limiting. So debut for me is also a little bit like a kid in a toy shop. So it was like Bollywood strings and, the, you know, a brass section. And it was just like, now I can have everything I want. Like it's some sort of a cornucopia or a smorgasbord. I am Ausmitter Jonsson. In the early days, Björk worked occasionally with us at Gram Records, an independent record label and record store in Reykjavik. I remember the eager discussions she was having with the customers, selling records, washing the floors, cleaning and doing whatever was needed. Since then, we have worked together from time to time on various projects, and when we meet, we always have an interesting dialogue on the current movements in music and culture. Okay. Hello, Björk. Uh, good to see you. Uh, can you tell me, moving from Iceland to London, can you talk a little bit about that? Because this is happening at the same time, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a, a decision to, I mean, I thought I would always live here, you know. I mean, a lot of my friends wanted to move abroad and thought Iceland was too small and claustrophobic. I didn't think so at all. I really liked it here. But then I had to admit to myself that to do the sort of music I wanted to do, I needed to move abroad. And it was a big a surprise to myself to have to do it and yeah so I moved in um, 
January 93, yeah. I thought if you would have asked me five years before, I was never going to do a solo album. Because I thought that was just for, you know, extrovert, uh, flamboyant people, not me. And then when I moved to London with my son, six-year-old, it was kind of very scary, but also extremely liberating, like a high, was on a constant high. And I thought I would just be there for, you know, three years and then I'd just go back or something. But I liked it more than I thought I would. You know, I obviously I was very lucky because I was surrounded by very creative people right away and I wasn't unemployed, I had a lot of work. So I was a very uh, busy immigrant. <laughs> and also, of course, I'm grateful to English culture forever because it was somehow the, the birthplace of my work persona, if you want. That's kind of where I was not just a child, I became like a grown-up as a musician. And maybe that part of me is still a little bit English. But it was a very, very liberating time. And also it was an amazing time in London. Actually, it doesn't surprise me now when they talk about the 90s in London like as a special, unique time. I, I thought it was just me having an explosion in my life, but it actually was extra, extra special with, you know, Alexander McQueen and Leila Arab and Aphex Twin and Chris Cunningham and Hussein Chalayan and Taste and Confused. And I mean, there was a lot of things that are still exist, you know, kind of pillar in, in English culture were being created around this time. And I was uh, woven into all of it. She had made some brass arrangements and was experimenting with electronic music. Listening to debut, you get the impression times were exciting and that life was fun. And I want to quote you also when you said you are working on concepts that didn't come to the surface until the later albums. What do you mean by that? Yes. Yeah, I think I was just learning to own my own musical world and learning to be proud about it. It was difficult for me as a character to be that selfish at that time. <laughs> you know, maybe coming from the punk background where we were very against like ecomaniacs or, or the rock stars of the 80s. We thought they were vulgar and we were like making fun of them. And it was all about DIY and everybody helping each other to release the next poetry book or make posters for each other and everybody voluntarily run bad taste. So I come from very much this kind of spirit of that the sort of ego of the 80s was bad. So everybody were equal. And I think it was the best school in the world. I, even though I would have gone to 10 music universities, they wouldn't have been better than the 10 years I had with the Sugar Cubes because they were amazing teachers inside that band, you know, and Kukl. Yeah. How bands ride together, it's magical. And when it works mm -hmm. well, it's, it's a total high and it gives you faith in humanity. The fact that six people can be in one room and do a three minute long song together, it's, it's a miracle. Right. But then you do that for 10 years and then you're like, okay, maybe I, it's not, it's just that I want to be a megalomaniac and do everything myself. 
but maybe just moving from six people to like two people <laughs> when it was one on one. Mm -hmm. So you have 50%, 50%. So each person has more space. I mean, when you are moving to London and doing that view, was that a statement uh, in a way of saying goodbye to the rock and to the rock world? Or maybe the rock world is alive in experimental electronic music and the music with brass arrangements. Yeah, I mean, I think moving to London and doing debut was so impulsive for me. I wasn't aware of it then. But looking back at it now, and it actually wasn't till 10 years ago or 20 years ago where I slowly started realizing that there was the family tree of indie music, which was um, like a branch on the music tree with drums and guitar and bass, you know. Mm -hmm. And then there was another branch that went another way. And that was more like Brian Eno and Kate Bush. Yeah. She did amazing programming on Fairlight and electronics and and then later, you know, like associates and DAF. You know, that is just as an important branch on the tree. But in the 80s, it's hard to imagine now, but in the 80s, this was very, not really talked about in the media. And a lot of people would talk about Kate Bush like she was just a crazy person. Like she was just possessed and mm -hmm. people be like embarrassed to say that they listened to Kate Bush at home or something. So you really had this environment looking back at it now that's kind of more patriarchal sort of rock branch mm -hmm. and then the sort of more electronic, I would say not only matriarch but also just queer, you know, because mm -hmm. a lot of these bands like, you know, even Soft Cell and and those pioneers in electronic music with, you know, amazing vocalists yeah. were gay. <laughs> and it was like queer music too, which is something I'm beginning to understand later, you know. Yes. So I think maybe I just found a home there, <laughs> you know. I think that's more my branch on the tree. And I think in the beginning I was rebelling against the other branch, but not knowing exactly what I was rebelling against which is often the case. <laughs> and then later you kind of understand it and then you go, oh, okay, now I understand, you know. His widgets, a sense of humor, suggests exciting songs, his fingers, Focus on her. He's Venus. He's Venus as a boy. I think maybe unconsciously in debut, I was trying to map out all the different categories in me, and that's maybe why I called it debut. And I was like, Okay, this is my beginning. 
my 0, 0.0, I want to say, okay, a little bit of me is jazz, a little bit of me is dancing happily to Bollywood music <laughs> or like rhythms like that. And a little bit of me is introspective. Mm -hmm. A little bit of me is me walking around cities and wanting to come with this kind of a world of a girl from Iceland who was, you know, 27 and the sort of things she is experiencing. Because, mm -hmm. you know, there were not so many lyrics like that at that time about the lives of women or girls, you know, just doing normal things. Very complicated relationship with jazz mm -hmm. because 90% of jazz I, I don't like but there's 10% which I love more than anything. I've actually several debates with friends who love jazz through the years. We've been trying to define it what it is that I like and I think I like jazz when it's more African or more like folk especially when it comes to the musicology I like it to be a little clashing, the notes, and yeah, not smooth cocktail in Manhattan in the 50s. <laughs> Maybe because I, that's not me. No. I also like jazz when it is more open to nature, to their roots in nature. Because mm -hmm. I'm like obsessed with nature, so, you know, for example, The Inflated Tear by Roland Kirk is one of my favorite jazz songs. And I didn't understand it why then, but I understand it better now, where they are more open to their roots in nature. Mm -hmm. And that sort of discordant chords, and it's more chaotic or more sort of punk. <laughs> It's interesting what you were saying about like all of these different ideas or musical concepts that you were dealing with and in a way I think the debut album really did capture that in terms of songwriting. I mean you have like songs like Come To Me One Day and you have these brass arranged songs like Angkor Song and then you have Aeroplane and you have the dance tracks Violently Happy or Big Time Sensuality and then Human Behavior. I mean there is a sample in human behavior that is credited to going down dying by the Brazilian musician Antonio Carlos Jobim. It 
seems like Brazilian music has inspired you also a lot during this period of time, like in the early 90s. Yeah, I think somehow there was a soft rebellion in the fact that I didn't align myself with a sort of Western, you know, the USA and England rock sort of patriarchy first world culture. Sorry, these are all very, very big and ugly words, but it <laughs> simplifies things. But I, I promise you, back then I was not thinking about any of these words. I really did not understand. I was very, very functioning just with impulse and instinct. And I think anything that was like what I call second world music, yeah. which is probably wrong to say, but you know, countries that are like similar to Iceland in the sense that they didn't industrialize till much later, not till the 20th century. So they still had contact with nature, right. but they still were modern. So they were not like third world countries, like living in poverty, but they were in the middle. And what I think happened is that that's a big part of the world that hadn't really been, was underrepresented the beginning of the 90s. And if you want to put this in a category, this is basically, you know, South America, <laughs> Thailand and Indonesia and Iceland and, you know, all these countries who are not, they don't share the sort of three chord guitar kind of male Christian <laughs> tradition, mm -hmm. you know, but they, they need like space or, or some sort of representation. And I felt really like that was my world and maybe unconsciously debut was me saying, okay, I'm a citizen of this country, you know, this part of the world. And, and putting a little bit of all of these different cultures. Also, I, I would like to say that some of it was some kind of feminist because what was really happening a lot to women in music at the time is you could be one thing, you know, you could either be the serious uh, singer-songwriter or you could be the, the sexy frontwoman or but you're not allowed to be like a humorist or um, a serious or clumsy or, you know, have 20 different characteristics. Mm -hmm. So I was really focused and I remember reading my diaries at this time and I was writing a lot over and over again that I have the right to be one day silly and next day clever and then humorous and happy and sad and angry and dressed like a clown and dressed like a mother and dressed you know, sexy if I wanted to, and like a techno person next day. So it was very much about that statement too, to have access to this diversity as a woman, to not be pinpoint into one, one role, right. to be able to be, you know, like you have all the Smurfs, but you just have one female Smurfette, but to say, okay, I want to be all the Smurfs. <laughs> You know, like that's yeah. my rebellion. The diary form, like the feeling that the lyrics are some kind of diaries at the time, of course, like constructed and uh, poetic, more like poetic than diaries maybe, but um, did you write a diary at that time? Yeah, I mean, I started writing diary when I was a teenager. 
and I would always draw a lot when I was a teenager. And I think it was like some form of like healing or even though I didn't call it that at that time, but it was more like a resonance between like just trying to f understand how I felt. And I would write in my diaries regularly, a few times a month since I was, I don't know, 16 or something. I still have them all. I have suitcases of diaries. <laughs> but I don't think I ever thought I would use them. Yeah, because I was thinking about this effortless, like looking at the texts. There is this attempt to catch like the spirit of a conversation of like what happens when you relate to something new, when you relate to a new person, when you relate to a new culture or something. There is this in-between space. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit like in old Icelandic was called magic writing, that you would put two different things together and that would uh, open something. Mm -hmm. You cannot understand it in a logical way somehow, why this element and this element together. It's like this alchemical process. You don't quite understand how this and this together, mm -hmm. like the synergy of it, will become something totally else and be a key to, to a whole dimension. And what I'm describing is actually the quality of mystical writings. Well, thank you. That was a very beautiful um, description. Description, thank you. Uh, yeah, I, I've never thought about it as that, and I didn't know about this magic writing. But I think it very well describes at least what I'm trying to do. But the thing is, obviously, I'm more a musician than a wordsmith, so I'm sometimes quite clumsy with words and it sometimes takes me a long time to get to where I want to get. But I think if I try to describe <laughs> now my headspace in this time, I would have to say, yes, I agree with you. I think I definitely benefited, even though I never planned it that way. No. The fact that I had been writing diaries for 10 years at this point, you know, which is a long time, you know, and I had managed to somehow like get some essence there and break the, the shell of just garble, you know, when you just write blah, 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 forever and it's nonsense and then you get to like two words that actually matter, you know. You look at them and like, yeah, that represents how I feel right now. And then later I was Blessed enough that my mother decided to make an album, when, like a children's album, when I was like 10. It came out when I was 11. But it was like songs of other people, and only one song I wrote myself. And what was most magical about it was that I got to go into the studio and see the magic of that, and everybody was extremely kind to me and, and teaching and showed me how everything worked. And, recorded my voice and played it backwards and I was just like, wow, this is a magical place. But maybe what was not good about the whole thing is it sort of because I was so introvert that it broke my innocence, like my idea of myself, how I exist in the world. Maybe a little bit too early, you know, just to go to a bus and you notice people are watching you, you know, when you're 11. And I would not advise it to other parents, you know, but I mean, I was lucky I was in Iceland, so no harm came to me. 
I was offered to do another album because it went really well, but I didn't want to. So I retreated. Now I think maybe it was because I knew that tree that I already had started working on. It wasn't part of that, you know, it, it was some sort of a lie. I felt like because all the grown-ups did the work that I was lying because I was the face of something that wasn't me. And then I started being in all those bands and that was amazing. And I just wanted to be with equal people that were my age. And then I did sort of 10 years of that. And then when I was 27, when my album finally comes out, which is 16 years later, part of that was maybe because subconsciously I thought, now I'm ready to, like this branch, this tree is mature enough. It can stand maybe with some helps from grownups, but more or less it can take on the world by itself. And I think because I started writing my melodies kind of like a free structure in nature, on my own, in introversy. And finding your ways, like it was also like on your way always to somewhere through the weather, you know? Yeah, totally. And because I did that for 10 years before I started doing bands and everything, I think the shape of my melodies, they are kind of like crooked trees, you know, they're kind of a little bit wild, you know, and also with a lot of space. Well, I see them crooked trees, but I see them as crooked pathways somehow. The singing and the melody making is part of your surviving as a child going alone, because it's a, I remember we walked this way once, it's quite a long way from your home back then to school mm -hmm. and in those bad weathers during winter time. So it's a question of also of like surviving and making it joyful instead of being horrible. And then it's understandable that then when this singing becomes just some layer in uh, other people's artworks, it, it's not what it is essentially for you. For you, it's more. It's somehow a question of life and death a little bit. So it cannot be compromised as being just a singing or just a melody. It's just, it's something else. Yeah, thank you. I, that's very beautiful. I, I think that's also why a lot of my melodies are 80 BPM, because that's the speed I walk in. And it actually explains a lot. What is that? 8 p 80 BPM? What's that? 80 beats per minute. Oh, okay, okay. It's, it's <laughs> even though I write melodies that I'm not walking outside, they, they almost always end up being in that speed. I mean, I've said to you before that in a way I felt that it was quite different from what was happening on the electronic or the British scene at that time. And I remember that you later on defined that debut is kind of uh, house music where the starting point is songwriting. Was that done like consciously or...? Yeah, I guess that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, for sure, because... I started going to the clubs in like 88, 89 and going up to Manchester to the raves there and the clubs 
and I was like, wow, this is my music. Like, you know, mm -hmm. those kind of acid house wear parties and you would have to sit, listen for eight hours to make music that was not amazing. And then suddenly one person would come at 4 a.m. and would just be like, wow, with one synthesizer and the whole house would just explode, you know, just with innovation mm -hmm. and originality. Suddenly that music was going to the club, you know, being social and having 20 people dance just to a one synthesizer, you know, like, you know, like, it was just a miracle for me. And I really felt like, oh yeah, I found my people, you know, this is my tribe. But what that hadn't happened a lot in like 91, 92, 93, was that you would have people write songs with that material, you know? Right. So to have like a narrator or to have like somebody to sing, you know, it would mostly be just like one sentence repeating through the whole song if there was something, which is also very liberating too when you are dancing and you just want more of the sort of trance release catharsis, you know, when you were dancing for six hours. I mean, it was just one of the most magical things that period ever. You would have to dress to go out that you could go completely wet through, but still look okay. You know, that's kind of why we would put the hair up in little buns, because it would be like your hair could go completely wet, but you could still dance and you could still look okay, you know, completely sweaty. So I think maybe looking back at it, I gave it a voice, you know, just like, okay, here I'm walking down the street and I'm having some tea and I'm, you know, like the putting a character in this, more a narrator. And I think music that probably usually was pretty abstract and not verbal at all, quite sort of introvert, to give that some sort of extroversy, you know, of a story. The joyfulness, like in the dancing, mm -hmm. why was it important? Did you feel the urge to remind yourself and others of joyfulness or like this ecstatic state somehow? Did you feel that, like when you were dancing in, in mm -hmm. London, what emotional side did you lack there? Why did you have to fight for it? Yeah, probably a combination of things. Okay, one way to answer it is, an Icelander abroad. <laughs> Very often they are the quirky, eccentric poet that is next to the, the Viking king, is entertaining him with eccentric stories, who's kind of wise and can tell the truth and be entertaining and then just go home and doesn't get into any battle or any like conflict. So I think it, part of it is being Icelandic and it's, I can't even think about it, uh, why? probably the reason why we survived winters for 1,000 years was if we couldn't take on the dark and flip it, we basically died. 
you know, why, that's why there's a song there called Violently Happy, which is sort of my clumsy attempt to make fun of it. We are almost like, it's almost too aggressive, you know, that you have to be happy, you know, to survive. But I also think on another level, and this is just me thinking out loud right now, and especially uh, looking at it from further away, is there was a certain exhaustion for the sort of black goths who were like obsessed with Baudelaire and Antonin Artaud and Bukowski, you know, Isos de Neubaden and all this kind of Wagnerian rock, 20th century industrial revolution dying after the Second World War universe. And we wanted a new universe, which was maybe 21st century, which was more biological and technological, where you can have technology and biology work together. And you can leave the industrial aesthetic, you can leave it behind. And the, the sort of blood and graveyards and suicides and baths and, you know, vampires. I mean, it still has darkness, just as much darkness, but it's the darkness of a black hole in space. It's a new environment dying. Actually, it's more like Icelandic nature a little bit, like the extremes of solstices. You feel the urge to remember the light in the most darkness moment. Yes, totally. So not get into the darkness for the darkness, but get into the darkness for the, um, mm -hmm. for the light somehow. Totally. And also the older I get, I think more and more about the aesthetic of the two world wars in 20th century and the sort of how a lot of countries had to deal with that, not just emotionally and, and psychologically and the terror and the trauma of it, but also just the aesthetic of it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of 80s stuff musically was like ghost of a ghost of a ghost, the, the post, post, post World War II. So I think there was something about the 90s in London, which was about, okay, that's finished. Let's start a new chapter in the book. And it's, it's the prequel to the 21st century. I actually look at now and laugh kindly to CD covers from the 90s of electronic music. A lot of it is the biological and the technological merging, you know, and it's not human scale because the human scale is like a Shakespeare play, a Greek tragedy, all this 20th century Western civilization stuff, you know, where we were going was in the quantum physics, you know, the vibration of the atoms, going on a space shuttle first time out of our solar system, you know, where we dethrone the human. The human is not anymore the main character in the story or something. Mm -hmm. And a lot of dance music was actually about that. Mm -hmm. That's why guitar <laughs> solos were illegal, mm -hmm. because the human was not the protagonist anymore, which is a contradiction to be a singer. It's like, how do you place the human voice in music where you don't have a human protagonist. You know, you place the singer amongst the animals or one of the inst musical instruments or an introvert. 
Did you think about that challenge then, or was it more like intuitional somehow, like this challenge of putting an element that could belong to the guitar solo, or like could be as symbolic of the old system as the guitar, the voice, putting that in that new music? Mm-hmm. I don't think I was aware of it then. And I also, I was just really introvert, and it wasn't till later where I, I could sort of connect the dots and sort of see like why I made the statement, you know. I think we could probably talk for six hours about the female voice. Of course, I was supporting that somehow. And, you know, my grandmother, when I played her uncle song, she was an abstract amateur painter. I said, oh, this song is about this painting of yours. And she was a woman of few words, and she said, I know. And then we never discussed it again. Down to the bottom So my mother, who was, uh, you know, I want to be kind to her memory, but in some ways the black sheep of her family. And I wanted to defend her and, and to find a voice. And, and she didn't have a, felt like she had a voice in her life, but she gave it to me, you know. Since I was five, she was always encouraging me and maybe a little bit too much sometimes. And so in many ways, I had these two ladies behind me, which is a whole nother story, you know. But uh, just so I name drop a little bit for you, which is another completely different way to answer your question, is uh, I once met Brian Eno. <laughs> and strangely enough, it was the only year where he wrote a book. He wrote a diary every day, this, and this book came out. And he met me that year. We went to the same steam room in London. And I probably went out the night before to 27 raves and never been so hungover in my whole life. I sat in the steam room and was trying to recover. There was like a lot of steam. And then the steam kind of went down a little bit. And I could see Brian in his face. <laughs> and the only thing he said to me was, I've realized that in countries that don't have a lot of hierarchy, the melodies, they jump in a very anarchistic way, up and down, and there's a lot of space between every single note. But in countries like England and Japan, there is small space between the notes. Mm-hmm. Do you agree with me? And is there anarchy in Iceland? Or something like that. That was this opening icebreaker line <laughs> to me. And I looked at him probably really hungover and just said, yes. <laughs> Then the smoke came again and he disappeared. And he uh, put it in his book. And I always thought it was really funny. But 
good theory. It is an interesting theory that maybe goes a little bit with what you're saying. And I also think that singers who write similar melodies to me, if you could make that kind of melody making into a branch on the tree, and you would put other singers on that same branch, you could say that it is breaking out of this kind of oppressive narrative Mm -hmm. that is Western civilization for women. And it is kind of like, you think I'm going to go there, I'm going to go the opposite. And then I'm going to go over there, and then I'm going to go over there. And so it is kind of, you think you catch me and control me, but no, I don't. Sonic Symbolism is a co-production of MailChimp Presents, Talkhouse and Björk, and was made by Björk, Odnier, Ausmetr Jonsson, Anna Geda, Ian Wheeler, Julie Douglas and Christian Kunz. It was produced by Christian Kunz and edited by Christian Kunz and Anna Geda. Special thanks to Derek Birkid, Catherine Verna Bentley, Zach McNeis, Ivar Kartlinson, Berger Thorison and Duna Steinu Thorgisdóttir. Music appears by courtesy of one little independent records. Mm-hmm.